You can be seated. Good morning. So last Sunday, uh, we continued our Lenten study walking through the book of Ruth. We looked at chapter 2, the generosity of Boaz and the providence of God. Uh, The Lord working gently, subtly, as Ruth 2 began with a string of just so happens. Just so happened that Ruth, the Moabite widow, just so happened to go out and glean in the fields of Boaz, who just so happened to be the relative of her deceased father-in-law, and he just so happened to be visiting the fields that day and just so happened to learn about Ruth. Strike up a conversation, share a meal, signal his admiration and respect. And what's interesting is in a chapter like that, we see God's providence on display, how he's arranging things for his glory and his purposes. But at the same time in the book of Ruth, especially here in chapter 3, we see human initiative and ingenuity on full display, not in conflict, but working together with God's will perfectly and mysteriously. Ruth chapter 3, we see the ingenuity of Naomi, and we see the initiative, the risky initiative of Ruth in this passage. Uh, Naomi, who actually I've been fascinated with in this study, watching her arc uh, through this book, but she's showing wisdom and discernment, Ruth displaying courage. And here we're going to see the second meeting between Ruth and Boaz. The scriptures are clear. Ruth is a worthy woman, and Boaz is a worthy man. And now we see them paired together for a second time, setting us up for the conclusion of this book we'll look at next week, Ruth 4. But before we go to Ruth 3, let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So this may surprise you a little bit, but I was never very good at dating. In fact, the whole first month that I was dating Holly, I was the only one aware that we were dating, which is not a good spot to be. We had met in a cell group through the Wesley Foundation, and I was quite interested. We started hanging out. We would spend time together, go to church, grab lunch afterwards. I was paying for lunch every time. That seemed a key indicator in my mind, but not hers. We would get coffee, paid for that as well. Still, the penny hadn't dropped. We would go play racquetball at Ramsey. We were spending a lot of time together. And I thought our dating relationship was going great. And so imagine my surprise when we're driving in the car, and she pointedly says that she and some friends had been talking about how strange it was that no one formally dated anymore. The guys weren't asking girls out or vice versa, but they remained in this kind of risk-free friend zone until they had a DTR. Now, I'm going to educate you. I don't know if DTRs are still a thing. They were all the rage 20 years ago in the campus ministry scene at UGA. DTR, define the relationship. What the heck are we and what the heck is going on? So I took the not-so-subtle hint and said, well, then, would you like to go on an official date with me? And thus, we actually began our dating relationship in Holly's eyes, and it turned out pretty well. Um, 
And I bring that up because we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, and it just reminds us how, how odd and culturally specific some of these things can be, how people date and court, how men and women relate to one another, what's appropriate in a given setting, who takes the initiative, etc., etc. It feels like it's different even than maybe 20 years ago. Uh, things are just constantly in flux, and it's certainly uh, different around the Anglican world. I've got friends from uh, different continents, different countries who are Anglicans. If you ask them about their marriage and how they met their spouse, it's quite different than how I met my spouse or how you might have met your spouse if you happen to be called to marriage. Um, it's very different. And we just need to be aware of how culturally specific these things can be. And I think we need to learn a little bit more about this context of Ruth. Um, otherwise, we're tempted to read our cultural realities, uh, overread our cultural realities back into Ruth chapter 3. Or we're tempted to treat a book like Ruth or one of these ancient Old Testament texts like a how-to manual uh, for dating or for relationships. And that's not what they're intended to do. This is God's revelation to us of how he was working in time and history. So let's, we're going to look pretty carefully at Ruth chapter 3. Um, and the first thing I want to highlight is, again, what I was amazed at is we have a new Naomi. As we open Ruth chapter 3, this is her mother-in-law. If you remember, uh, the first chapter is probably the worst chapter of Naomi's life. As Ruth, the narrator, recounts it, she lost everything. Her husband died, her sons both die. She returns to Israel bitter and angry. She was so hurt, and understandably so, she changed her name to Mara. Call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant Naomi uh, any longer. Life happened to her in a series of tragic events. The only initiative we see early on is the initiative of Ruth. Uh, Ruth takes the initiative to commit to her, this over and above commitment to her mother-in-law, even after her husband has died. Uh, second, last week, Ruth 2, she has this initiative, this industrious plan to head out and glean in the fields just to provide the bare sustenance so they can not starve together. And towards the end of Ruth chapter 2, we started to see a little change in Naomi. Ruth returns with all of this food, and Naomi marvels, and uh, she begins to hope again. Instead of this call-me-bitter person, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And now we come to chapter three. It's like a switch has flipped in this dear lady. As chapter three opens, we see this new woman, Naomi. And we don't see Mara any longer, do we? She's back to Naomi. And she's living into that. She takes the initiative. She gives Ruth instructions um, I would say there's nothing uh, manipulative or, or moral in her words. Her plan does walk the fine edge. It's filled with risk, and we'll get into that. But these are words of mentoring. There's maternal wisdom. There's tenderness. My daughter, here's what we're trying to do. You see the relationship, the special relationship of these women uh, on full display. Previously, Ruth had been an above and beyond daughter-in-law. Now we see Naomi leaning into her role as a mother, mother-in-law for Ruth. She leans in and says, my daughter, should I not see rest for you? That's her goal, that it may be well with you. And that word rest, by the way, um, it's really fun. 
If you look at the connotation, it's not just rest as in like take a nap. It's rest like a, a, a mother bird would rest in a nest. And it's just this early flare that it plays off Boaz's earlier statement that Ruth has found shelter in the wings of the Lord. The idea of wings is going to come up again in Ruth 3. But also you just get this idea, oh, she's looking, I mean, a nest is this maternal image, right? Um, of a mother ready for, we're like, oh, maybe there could be something future here uh, for this family after all. And so she says, uh, to boldly seek out Boaz after getting properly ready. And we're going to talk a lot about this, but there's some intentional ambiguity throughout this section. You're trying to figure out, wait, what is she exactly saying? What's, what, wait, what's happening? There, there's some holy discretion that the narrator is using. But in verse 3, they're setting out this plan. She says, wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak. And this could be very simply an instruction for Ruth to transition from a state of mourning. She might have had a mourner's gown on or had, uh, there, there were physical characteristics. You could see, okay, that person's lost someone. They're in a state of mourning. It could be she's just saying, hey, move out of that state and move on to what's next. But it's also very likely that that, that simple phrase, wash, anoint, put on your garments, um, that is a very a uh, common way to talk about preparing for a marriage. In both the Old Testament and in ancient Near Eastern literature, even preparing for the marriage bed. It's a very poignant phrase, the sequence of wash, anoint, put on your cloak. She says once Boaz has uh, had his bread, his, his drink, he's alone on the threshing floor, then go. Uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Again, one of my guides through this book of Ruth has been Marion Ann Taylor. She's an Old Testament scholar at Wycliffe in Toronto. And she points out this is filled with intrigue and innuendo. And, and, and rightly so. Uncover, feet, lie down. These can all be euphemisms for other things that you would expect. Again, there's a, they, there's a holy discretion here. And I would just say from my reading of what Naomi is telling Ruth to do, she is telling Ruth essentially, go and propose to Boaz. Make yourself available in, in the sense of the word, uh, or at least invite Boaz's proposal. Maybe like Holly saying, why don't guys ask girls out anymore? <laughs> but Ruth is to be on the front foot here. Um, and, and again, I think that when we think of Something like proposals, I don't know what comes to mind. Uh, proposals used to be fairly private, tender, secret, not social media ready. <laughs> now proposals are the furthest thing from private. Um, now proposals are such a big deal, like they started doing them in high school to go to dances and things. Uh, proposals are, are huge, but in this time, there, there wasn't this sense of like proposal, engagement, ceremony. They register it with the county clerk, like we think of it today. Um, you had a few ways you could get married. One is you could have a relative arrange the marriage for you. We see that in the Old Testament. Sometimes a father, a mother goes out, secures a spouse uh, for their child. Sometimes you could register it with the religious authorities. Um, do you know the other way you could actually get married? It was to go to bed. And I know that's odd for us to think through, that that's actually one of the key ways that you got married. 
in the Old Testament. And the things we have, like certificates and witnesses, all those are to protect women from men who would get married in that way and then not carry out their obligation. Fulfill what promise they had actually essentially made um, on the marriage bed. And so things are a little bit of out of order. I just think we need to know that to see um, that one, this is a very physical plan, but that that is, um, it's not a tawdry plan. It's a proposal to essentially, let's be joined in marriage. That's what's happening on the threshing floor. And again, that's where I think our cultural difference makes things difficult. We, we're tempted to read our own context and sequences into this passage. Um, and by the way, Naomi um, as she comes up with this plan for Ruth, and again, it, it's fairly risky. Boaz could, could turn her down, essentially. But we've been, it's been made clear throughout that the moral character and integrity of both Ruth and Boaz are without question. Naomi trusts this woman and this man. She's not sending Ruth into harm's way, but she is saying, hey, have it be more secluded and private in case he's not interested to save her embarrassment. That's what's going on here. Um, there was a Victorian-era Methodist minister who says that what happens, this plan on the threshing floor is too beautiful, delicate, dangerous, and sublimely virtuous to be recited here. There's a lot going on. So let's look at their actual meeting, Ruth and Boaz, uh, part two, after they met in the fields. Because with the scene set and the plan devised, Ruth does head to the threshing floor uh, by the way, the threshing floor, just, do you know what that is? That's where you would, you know, once you harvested everything, you'd have to go to the threshing floor. Um, there's no machinery <laughs> in ancient Israel. And after the harvest, grain would have to be separated from the straw and husk manually. This was known as threshing. You would go to this floor, you would have a fork, you would throw this up in the air, and the wind would blow and separate things. Um, and you had to kind of get this done quickly once you had harvested everything. Um, what's interesting is that when you think about the, the winnowing fork and the threshing floor and the separation, these are usually images of, of risk and judgment in the scriptures. When I think about what John the Baptist said of Jesus, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his fork, his winnowing fork is in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a serious, separating, risky business. And for Boaz, we get the idea that he has left his home, probably in more of the town, and he's camping out on a business trip. He's trying to maximize his time on the threshing floor to get this process done quickly. Um, and as we see it unfold, it looks like Ruth is following Naomi's instructions to the letter. Boaz has his fill. He goes. He lies down. She comes. She's doing what she's supposed to do. Verse 7, she came softly, uncovered his feet, lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, or maybe it just so happened, a woman laid his feet. And it's okay to laugh at that. That's a funny scene. Like there, there is, there, there's a playfulness to how this is being narrated, to go, oh my God, could you imagine? Boaz is this old dude. He went to sleep, it was just him, he kind of crashed out by the grain, he wakes up, whoa, young woman. Again, probably a pretty like PG-13 moment with this young woman. What would he have thought? He says, who, who are you? 
She says, I am Ruth, your servant. And then she actually goes a step forward. She goes beyond Naomi's instructions. She makes a bold request that is a risky, virtuous, forward proposal. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Earlier, Boaz says, you have found shelter in the wings of Israel's God. She says, well, I find shelter and refuge with you. Will you spread your wings over me? And again, this is a very clear, um, interesting intersection of, uh, of how a marriage would work. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, the prophet is writing, and it's actually of the Lord looking at Israel. It says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's what's being requested here. Would you spread your garment? Would you spread your wings over me? Again, it's a forward proposal. Uh, It could result in a marriage right then and there. The only curveball is, Boaz says, I can't go there yet. There might be another guy. And you've all seen a good romantic comedy. You know you need a curveball right now. This is the curveball, the other guy. The kinsman redeemer that might be closer. And we'll talk more about the concept of the kinsman redeemer uh, next week. And how this simple little story actually situates in the broad story of redemption. But, oh no, is there a a twist? Is the plan going to not go to form? What's this? Who's this other guy? that we've not heard from, never named, actually fades into obscure anonymous history because he doesn't take up the role of the kinsman redeemer. But it's likely then that we do have an engagement of sorts. Could you imagine that? Well, I'll marry you if the other guy doesn't want to. Again, it's not a matter of romance. It's that this other guy has a near claim uh, in the family, and we haven't heard about him before. It's a late, oh, that might have happened. Again, it's like a curveball and a romantic comedy, but Boaz does make it clear. Uh, He may have a better claim, but I hope to redeem you. I hope to marry you. We we have hopes that this worthy man and this worthy woman will will end up with one another after um, a rough road that they've actually walked. Um, And then what does Boaz do? He, He loads her down with provisions again. His generosity is on display. It's interesting, I think in Ruth 2, when Boaz makes sure Ruth has all of this food, um, that's charity. He's looking at Ruth as this sojourning woman, this widow, caring for a widow. Here's charity on display. Um, I think this is not charity. This is interest. This is intrigue. This is flowers and chocolate <laughs> that she takes home. Um, and she goes home and she meets Naomi again. And we're actually left kind of going, oh, what's going to happen? Again, this chapter is crafted to build suspense and delight. Um, I don't know that we often do that. Just look at the scriptures and go, ha well done. <laughs> like it's beautiful in its orchestration and its storytelling. It's um, not just the facts. It's, de- it's designed to intrigue and delight and build suspense and build interest. We're supposed to wonder what Ruth and Boaz were really doing and what really happened. I think while it's easy to see parallels to a romantic comedy, for goodness sake, this ends with a cliffhanger. It's like a Netflix show. 
Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today, dot, dot, dot. What's going to happen next? I would say that this is not merely a, a love story or a story of romance. I think we can, um, it, it's that, but it's more. There's something deeper and richer on display. Um, and I actually just want to, the main thing I want to do today as we look at this um, is teach you a Hebrew word. I don't do this very often. It can get pretentious and weird to talk about Greek and Hebrew words. I know this. But there is a Hebrew word. It's called chesed. And you can do that little guttural thing if you, if you can. I don't know. Like, I've tried to learn Spanish. I couldn't do the R's. Like, text can do the R's. But I can do a little bit of chesed. Chesed. Um, our English Bibles don't know how to translate this word. Because it's, it's impossible to capture with just one English word. And so when you read uh, in the scriptures, you'll see it translated as love or kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love or mercy or covenant faithfulness. We're trying to wrap all of these words around this full, beautiful concept of hesed. Not just romantic love, something uh, bigger and broader and deeper, this covenant faithfulness, this uh, love on behalf of the other. And ultimately, it's our reminder that we're not just dealing with a, a romance story, but it's something greater. And, and here we have these men and women, Ruth and Boaz. Um, Ruth 2, verse 8, Naomi says that Boaz is a man of chesed. And Ruth 3.10, Boaz says that Ruth is a woman of chesed. He says, essentially, blessed are you that you went for the ugly old guy. Instead of marrying for love, for attraction, for the young one, whether rich or poor, it's hesed matches with hesed, the worthy man and the worthy woman. And ultimately, this, this term um, is one of the key attributes, and just it is uh, the Lord in the Old Testament. When God reveals himself, he reveals that he is hesed. Throughout the Old Testament, it's his favorite name tag. When he reveals himself to Moses on the mountain, Exodus 34, says, the Lord, the Lord, who is this God? Well, he's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and abounding in chesed, that's the word behind that, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, chesed, again, for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Ultimately, this is a story of godliness and godly love. How the Lord's faithfulness is on display. And it sets up this ultimate cliffhanger. In a book without burning bushes, without thus saith the Lord, how does God's chesed show up? How does it take effect? Will it show up to restore and redeem all that has been lost so far? How do we understand the abounding steadfast love and faithfulness of God if you're Naomi? And you've gone through the trauma and pain of losing your husband and your sons. Can you trust that God's providence is indeed at work gently and subtly? I think it's worth pausing here to, to see that the primary way God is at work in Ruth the ordinary way we see him working today is through men and women of Hesed. 
That's why we have Ruth and Boaz. Worthy woman, worthy man. This woman of chesed, this man of chesed. I would even say we begin to see Naomi display it here. She comes up with this plan. She's alert that God may be up to something. She's patient but not passive as she comes up with this ingenious plan. The broader picture of Ruth 2 and Ruth 3 is to see how God's magnificent providence and intentional human actions are being used purposefully to bring about his will and our good in ways that are mysterious and beautiful and worthy of worship. Probably the last thing that occurs to me is that while there are no burning bushes, again, this is a moment of glory. Uh, there's no burning bushes. There are no, thus saith the Lord's. But this idea of kind of the burning bush, God's glory on display, do you see where it tracks into the New Testament? I mean, in a few ways. One is later this week, we'll celebrate the Annunciation. Uh, when the, the angel comes to, to Mary, let her know she's going to give birth to Jesus. Um, and we're often kind of told that the moment of the conception of the Lord is like a burning bush moment where the glory of the Lord comes, but Mary's not consumed or destroyed. Something amazing takes place and flows from it. Right before Lent, we looked at the transfiguration. Jesus shining himself, the burning bush of God, glory on display. And here's what I think is interesting. You know the next time we see this idea of really the burning bush in the New Testament? It's where we'll go at the end of the Easter season, Pentecost. When those tongues of fire descend above the apostles' heads, that, that's not accidental. It's this idea that if in the Old Testament we have these burning bushes and thus saith the Lord's, in the New Testament somehow by his grace and goodness, God sends the Holy Spirit to turn each one of us into these burning bushes filled with his glory and grace, filled with his chesed so that we can be his hands and feet in the world. Like Ruth, this woman of chesed, and Boaz, this man of chesed. And we'll see just next week how this story resolves and how it fits into the broader picture of God's story of redemption. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.